Welcome to WMNF 88.5 FM and WMNF.org. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. If you like the programming on 88.5 FM, please consider making a donation. And you can double your impact beginning at noon today through the Giving Challenge. There's more information at WMNF.org. I have a couple of segments planned for today's show. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Later on, we're going to be joined by the head of the Military Sexual Trauma Department at Veterans Affairs in Tampa. But first, we're going to hear about the concerns of the small beach communities in Pinellas County. There's 13 of them in all, stretching from Gulfport to Clearwater. And as you'll hear, they face problems like other communities in dealing with things like aging infrastructure and population growth. But more than other communities, they're also on the front lines of climate change and sea level rise. This month, the Institute for Strategic Policy Solutions, that's ISPS, at St. Petersburg College and the Treasure Island and Madeira Beach Chamber of Commerce put on a forum with the mayors of several of those beach communities. We're going to hear a segment of that now. It's moderated by former Bay News 9 anchor Al Rochelle. We'll first get their takes, the mayor's takes, that is, on how this year's Florida legislative session turned out for these small communities. Here are the voices of Bill Queen of North Reddington Beach, Mary Beth Henderson of Reddington Shores, Tyler Payne of Treasure Island, Al Johnson of St. Pete Beach, David Will of Reddington Beach, Sam Henderson of Gulfport. And we're going to end this segment with John Hendricks, mayor of Madeira Beach. Let's talk about the legislative session in 2022. I was going through some of these things, and you gentlemen and ladies are much more acquainted with what, whether you won or you lost in the legislature. So let's start with that, that particular uh, topic. And Bill, let's go with you. Did anything happen to the legislature worthwhile that you were talking about? Let's go back the past 10 years, and we're losing every year. 2022 is uh, Senate Bill 620. It's a litigious bill that's going to cost the city's money based on businesses deciding that the city passed an ordinance that affects their business and they can sue the cities. It's, a, it's really a problem. And it's just the tip of the iceberg. We've been dealing with this for years. It's one thing after another. If it's not short-term rentals, it's something else. They're taking away, Tallahassee is taking away our home rule where we represent all these people out here. They take away our ability to do that. And it just it infuriates us. Right. Mayor Beth, same thing for you. A hundred percent. It's definitely the erosion of home rule. And we believe that the, the best government is the, the people that are closest to the people. They, the people in Tallahassee have no idea what's going on in Reddington Shores. So when we say home rule, did this thing get out of whack because of COVID? I mean, because some of the legislation that was passed was in reaction to other things that had happened in the area. COVID had nothing to do with it. It's been going on for 10, 15 years. Okay. We've been fighting it forever. Okay. Tyler, same thing to you. Um, echo their sentiments. I made a couple trips up to Tallahassee this year to speak with our legislators, and it's just, it's cities that aren't here in Pinellas County that are causing the issue, that are passing a lot of ordinances that our state needs to, feels that they need to swoop in and um, override what other cities are doing. It really, the problem isn't here, but we're suffering the consequences of because of some of the decisions that are being made in cities in South Florida and other places around the state. So one win that we did get, I think, was the derelict vessels. They've really they passed legislation that allows us to clean those up a lot easier. We fortunately didn't have many in Treasure Island, but I know a lot of my colleagues have really suffered with that, and our, our sheriff 
acted very quickly and along with um, Representative Cheney, they were able to clean up over 30 derelict vessels from around the county. So I think I consider that a big win this year. Okay. Alan, for you, legislative wins or losses? I, I agree with the Mayor Queen that one of the big surprises that I've had since taking this job five years ago is I had no idea I'd be so concerned with what's going on in Tallahassee because every time you turn around, they're trying to take control away from us. And uh, one thing I found to be absolutely true that the people in Tallahassee that make up these rules don't understand is that uh, I was told don't ever go to Publix in, you, without buying your ice cream last because you'll melt it before you get out of there. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, because everybody knows you and you have to answer <laughs> questions and you've got to respond to things like he's talking about when we get our hands tied. And, and that to me has been the biggest surprise of uh, my being in this position. Okay, David, same question. Uh, I would agree, of course, home rule. Uh, the Florida State Constitution gives municipalities the ability to govern themselves. And with each session, they take a little piece of that away. So it'll come to a point where I don't know why we come and turn the lights on. Okay, Samuel? Thank you for bringing up One Ray of Hope. That has definitely been something that's helped us with uh, the derelict vessels and, and uh, the path forward, moving faster to get those removed. Yeah, the, the home rule issue is a big one. I think no community knows, uh, knows more, uh, no one knows more about the community than the people who live there. Um, and I think that in, in many different ways, um, some of the folks that make those rules, it may be a, a, a rule that fits uh, some communities, but not all communities. And so when you, when you do things like preempt, uh, the ability to manage, like you were saying, uh, short-term rentals, uh, to manage making rules and regulations regarding uh, plastic, styrofoam, things like that that, that pollute our waters. Uh, when, that, when that's taken away, yeah, our ability to do our jobs uh, is severely diminished. So I appreciate you bringing up something positive in this one, but in general, I, I do feel like every session, even though we do have some folks up there that work very hard uh, and try to make reasonable rules, a lot of the stuff that's preempted from our control are things that, that have long-term damage and even things that are beyond the coastal stuff, like uh, uh, regardless of what your opinion is that with the, uh, uh, the don't say gay bill and other, other things that really reach into the partisan stuff, when people see that on national news outlets, I think it tends to make some people feel uh, unwelcome in a place where we kind of rely on them coming to see us and hopefully making them feel welcome and want to have a good time here. Okay, John, same question. Bill 620 is a concern to all of us. Uh, that's one thing I like about the big C is the mayors get together and we discuss common problems. So, so I have to just uh, mirror what everyone else has said on that. The other things are derelict vessels. Uh, Representative Cheney was instrumental in getting uh, rules changed on that to where we can actually start getting boats out of here after 21 days. Uh, Madeira Beach had 22 derelict vessels removed. And the other big issue in Madeira Beach is not a lack of sand and needing beach nourishment. We've got too much sand. Uh, as they nourish the beaches north of us, we have beach groins. They were put in in 1957. In all these years, not once has Madeira Beach gotten beach nourishment. Uh, the problem with all that sand migrating south is that it is coming into the pass. And it's closing up John's Pass gradually, as it's doing in Blind Pass. And as Blind Pass is filling in, uh, it puts more pressure with currents on John's Pass with that water moving in and out of Boca Ciega Bay. So we've needed help on that. That's been a big, big issue. And actually, the legislature helped us out 
with this through Representative Cheney. She's been literally a rock star, I think, for a number of these communities. Uh, she got the city $1.55 million for dredging of John's Pass. Now, it passed legislature, but it's still got to go across the governor's desk. So we hope it doesn't get vetoed. So those, those are big issues that we've got going on. Well, those were seven mayors from Pinellas County Beach Community speaking at a forum this month. We'll hear more from them in just a second. But I want to remind you that you're listening to WMNF Tampa. And this is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. If you'd like to weigh in on anything you're hearing, maybe the best way right now would be to email us at dj at wmnf.org or to text 813-433-0885. And later on in the show, I will open up the phone lines for you to call in at 813-239-9663. That probably won't be until the second half of the show. So honestly, the best way is for us for you to reach me right now would be to email dj at wmnf.org or to text. Well, it's 1015 in the morning and we're hearing from some of the mayors in Pinellas County Beach communities. Next up, the moderator, Al Rochelle, asks them about a range of topics like lobbyists, cooperation between the cities, and infrastructure. And the order that you'll hear the mayors in this time will be first Al Johnson from St. Pete Beach, then Sam Henderson of Gulfport, Tyler Payne of Treasure Island. And we'll hear Al Johnson a second time to wrap up the segment. Here's the, the L word, lobbyists. Who do you have? Because when you go with your individual voice, I mean, the reality of it is, is you're not going to get heard. But if you go as a group... Does that help at all? And, and tell me about the big C. Anybody? Actually, uh, the, the big C is the 11 barrier island communities. We, we include in that uh, Clearwater, even though they're a mainland city, but they've got a pretty substantial beach, so we let them in. But uh, without Clearwater, we're combined with the third biggest city in the county behind St. Petersburg and Clearwater. Mm-hmm. So, and we're the economic engine of this place. Uh, I have one of our... I don't know it was my constituent or somebody from, I think it was a guy who lives in St. Petersburg, took the um, tourist development tax, the bed tax. And uh, I generate just a tad less than Clearwater um, and more than St. Petersburg, just in our little two and a quarter square mile city. But if you do it on a per capita basis based on your population, I'm number one. Treasure Island is number two, actually. And um, I'm five t- four or five times uh, Clearwater and 20 times St. Petersburg. Mm-hmm. So we're, this whole group here is the economic engine of, of the county. Last year, 21, we had uh, four of the Barrier Island beaches were named the t- in the top 20 beaches in the country, all in this county. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that tells you, well, we got something here that people want to come to. Yeah, let's care. I want to. I want to dig a little bit deeper on these infrastructure problems. So you say that there are there are problems historically. How did we get in this situation now? Because we have a big county, and I know there is some cooperation between all of you. We've had some disagreements about how much cooperation there is, and and whether they're really doing their fair share. But in terms of the way these individual cities were put together, did they all just have their little own infrastructure? Is there a major tie-in? Because I saw in in terms of how much it was going to cost some of you folks to try to get hooked up to the, the county sewer system or whether we, uh, uh, different cities, I think Bel Air is having a problem with their own power generation now and trying to figure out on the, what they're going to do. So h- how did we get into this position and do you see a way out of it? Well, there's a lot of cities that started with their own systems and they have sold their systems to the county. 
That's how they got out of it. So the county picked up the, the crux of the money to fix their problems. We've got a sewer lift station going in in our town that's $5 million that we sold to the county 10 years ago. It's a 30-year life. The life's up. They're going to replace it. On top of that, they're building a new emergency services building for the Reddingtons, which is a great thing. So we've got a $10 million addition from the county helping us out. So there is a good partnership with the county working with us on all these systems. When we see all of the roads that are being dug up, I'm going from Clearwater on down because I ride, I ride my bike a lot uh, up and down here. I've been hit four times, folks. I'm still alive. <laughs> That's pretty good. I see the roads when they're dug up. Now, is Pinellas County in charge of all the roadways or do you in each municipality have to sit down with them and they go, oh, yeah, we're doing the sewer line because the big deal up, up in the Clearwater aspect of it was stormwater uh, problems. So, so how, how does that work? For us, we have county roads that run through our city. So anything we do, and I, I know it's the same for a lot of us up here, if we're doing something that involves a change to a county road, it's got to go through the county. Uh, we can make requests and, and recommendations, and we can work with them to do it. But in the end, if it's a county road, uh, it's not uniquely up to us. But there are other the other roads um, are our choice, at least in, as far as Gulfport goes. And then there's roadways that we share, like our boundary on 49th Street between us and St. Petersburg. Uh, so you have a mix of which ones are county that you have to go through and which ones are, are yours 100% to manage. Mm -hmm. So it's usually a combination. And I know with you all dealing with Gulfport yeah. Boulevard all and the way we have down. A, yeah, Gulf Boulevard's a state road, so yeah. we have to deal with the Florida Department of Transportation on projects there. But in Treasure Island and I assume other cities, we're responsible for the sewer system, so we have to coordinate with them. And the state has been, a, while they're... Home Rule is constantly under attack. They have been a good partner for us with um, some of those projects. We this year have two um, really big infrastructure funding requests that have been granted and are waiting on the governor to sign. We have $1.5 million coming for a new uh, master pump station um, that pumps 1.4 million gallons of sewer out to St. Petersburg every day. Wow. So it's just kind of crazy to think that that's how much is going out, but um, <laughs> it's a very key part of our infrastructure that needs to Sorry, be paid attention to. So we thank all of our residents and our visitors for the patience with when we do have that work going on on Gulf Boulevard. Um, it's, to, it's to preserve our way of life on the beaches. Mm -hmm. No, go ahead. I, I want to reiterate what Tyler was talking about because we have a similar case. We don't have any county roads. We've got one big state road and that's it. Everything else is our own. And uh, similar uh, setup with the, um, in fact, we share a sewer line back to St. Petersburg because we pay them to treat our sewer much like Treasure Island does. But with that being said, we have spent somewhere in excess of $35 million in the last five years doing road upgrades and sewer system upgrades, even though our sewer system is a transportation thing. You get it off the island, get it to St. Petersburg, and they charge you to treat it. Uh, we actually, part of our city is on the, uh, a little finger that's on the, on the <laughs> north end of the, um, the causeway, the come, Cory Causeway, that comes over from South Pasadena. It's part of St. Pete Beach, and the reason is there used to be a treatment plant there. Mm -hmm. The state won't let you put a treatment plant on a barrio island anymore, which is one reason they came up with a sewer system. And so uh, nobody wanted the, the mess that they had, the ecological mess, so they built condos on it, and we still have it. So <laughs> I've got a few constituents out The one thing that you might point out about the, the construction on Gulf Boulevard is the beautification project that has been partnered with the county. 
They've given us $70 million over the last 15 years to underground all the utilities on Gulf Boulevard. So a lot of what you're seeing is that work going on. And FDOT runs the road from about Indian Rocks south. Indian Rocks north is the county. So Gulf Boulevard north is the county up that way. So a lot of that construction you're seeing is that project in place and being worked on. Those were mayors from Pinellas County Beach Community speaking at a forum this month. I want to remind you that you're listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan on 88.5 FM and WMNF.org. And if you'd like to weigh in, you could call 813-239-9663. I probably won't take phone calls for another 20 minutes or so, but if you'd like to weigh in earlier than that, you can email DJ at WMNF.org or you can text 813-433-0885. Sign your name if you send us a text, please. And just also a reminder that in a few minutes, we're going to be talking about Sexual Assault Awareness Month which is April, and will be joined by the head of the Military Sexual Trauma Department at the Veterans Affairs in Tampa. So please stay tuned for that as well. Well, in this last segment with these Gulf, uh, sorry, these Gulf of Mexico Pinellas County mayors, moderator Al Ruchel is going to ask the mayors, mayors how they are preparing for climate change, sea level rise, and saltwater intrusion. So here are the voices, the responses from Mayor Dave, David Will of Reddington Beach, then Al Johnson of St. Pete Beach, John Hendricks of Madeira Beach, Sam Henderson of Gulfport, Tyler Payne of Treasure Island, and Mary Beth Henderson, the mayor of Reddington Shores. But in terms of we talking about climate change, are we basically talking about flooding? Is that the number one concern that we have with, with climate change, rising sea levels, and whether it's going to happen tomorrow or going to happen 20 years from now? And then as I drive up and down this roadway, and I swear that every time there was a rainstorm in Pinellas County, I can tell you where it's going to flood. I know in my head because I've driven these roads, and it's always the same thing. In your planning for climate change, are you ever going to be able to get ahead of the picture? Because you can't automatically raise all of Pinellas County and all of these areas. Let's just raise everything up five feet and then we'll be all right for about 50 years. So how, how are you dealing that in, in a realistic way without people saying, well, you're not doing enough climate change, climate change, climate change. And let's just start, David, with you and we'll just work our way around. Well, any new construction is required to be elevated, of course. Uh, we are on a barrier island, so there are some limitations there. We have some areas you've mentioned that are traditionally low in town. So anytime we get a storm or any type of high tide, these areas become flooded. Uh, one of our infrastructure projects we're doing right now is to put these uh, check valves in our storm drains to prevent the high tides from coming back up into the street. I know Bill uses them and Mary Beth uses them and they've spoke very highly of them. So we have them coming to our town. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we can do to try and help the water or stop the water from coming into those low elevations. But anything over the seawall or anything over your finished floor elevation, you're going to get flooded. We are on a barrier island. And it's only going to get worse. Yes. Same question to you. Uh, down the line. Yeah, we have a similar problem, but one of the things we've done is, and that's the biggest immediate thing we can do to mitigate the climate change issue, but um, we've uh, taken a different approach to stormwater. And we found out that we have sunny day flooding in several areas of our city. All You have a king tide every, what, three months? It comes up through the drains. So we now concentrate on getting rid of, of keeping salt water out rather than getting, letting fresh water get out. Because you'd rather drive your car through fresh water than salt. And you don't want you know, salt water to ruin your lawn, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So much like uh, David was saying, we, uh, we put in a lot of 
of uh, upgraded drain systems when we've done all these street projects and we continually do them and every time we do one we put in baffle boxes and check valves for the sewer and you know so we're cleaning the sewer the, the stuff that runs off the street that gets into the bay that gets cleaned as well but the check valves are huge and it has helped mm -hmm. but we do have areas that aren't done yet and Every time somebody complains about it, I say, well, you bought a house at sea level, you know. Oh. I'm, it's kind of hard for us to make the water flow uphill, so we're trying. <laughs> yeah. Sean, same thing to you. One thing we're doing is uh, uh, the life of a seawall is approximately 25, 30 years. Uh, we're going to start requiring when new seawalls go in that they're raised by one foot. And... Initially, that really isn't going to do you any good if your neighbor's is lower. But over the period of time, as everybody is replacing their seawalls, gradually we will be raising the entire seawalls in the city to where the city basically will be a foot higher. Uh, another big problem we're having with flooding, I don't know that it's really uh, sea rise, but... Uh, John's Pass has shoaled up so much and when we get a storm coming in waves are breaking not only into John's Pass but actually we've had waves breaking under our boardwalk uh, with all that sand that we have come in there our outfalls to the streets are filling with sand the streets are flooding because they're just they're plugged and another reason we have got to be able to get something done with the sand issue uh, at John's Pass. And I saw Representative Cheney come in, hi, Linda, and I will say it again. I said it earlier. She has been so good for all these communities in what she's done and getting, I think, a total of $26 million this year alone to help all of us small communities because... A small town, Madeira Beach is under 4,000. We can't do a lot of these things on our own. We've got to have some help uh, and keeping my fingers crossed that everything gets signed off in Tallahassee. Mm -hmm. Sam, same for you. Uh, we've been working on several things because we're one of the few places in Bocasiega Bay. Uh, it's a very limited number of places that have an area of Bocasiega Bay that's not seawalled, and our beach is one of those, and it's really only a little over a quarter-mile stretch, that and uh, Clam Bayou uh, to our east. So we just engaged with the Department of Environmental Protection, got a $175,000 grant with them to do a living shoreline. So we're trying to do things that are more working within um, the contours of, of natural vegetation um, as opposed to seawalling because there's when you when you seawall everything, um, then you're kind of taking away access. And so you don't want to uh, take your beach away by seawalling it in. So we're trying to do things that are more on the resiliency side of, you know, taking advantage of mangrove seagrasses. Uh, using things like riprap and natural materials to break any of that wave velocity because it's not just the fact that that water is slowly rising as we take more fixed carbon out of the ground and release it you know through combustion and to, to make co2 in the atmosphere um, but it's also the fact that not only are sea levels rising uh, as, as we warm with co2 absorbing that radiant energy but we're always also having um, storm intensification. So the, the warmer it gets, the more, and, and you know from being in the news all those years, the more intense storms get and you start seeing things like Harvey uh, becoming nearly a Cat 5 in, in just a matter of two days. Uh, Hurricane Michael that took out Mexico Beach. So not only are we seeing 
water levels rise, which gives us bigger storm surges. And of course, here we tend to keep getting these storms right when we're at a high tide, um, you know, which really helps. Um, but also the fact that you're going to have more intense storms, more unpredictable storms, a larger number of storms in a given hurricane season. So um, it's not just that sea level rising. It's also that wave action and what you can do to mitigate it. And again, um, as you said, uh, when you're living at sea level, uh, there's only so much you can do. And it's going to change the face of our neighborhoods as we have to start building uh, to FEMA regulations and be above that base flood elevation that they dictate to us. Right. Because someone, say, living in a little bungalow in Gulfport, um, you say they, they get washed out in the next storm. They can't build back what they had there before, and highly likely they wouldn't have the money to build what's required. So it's going to change sure. how our waterfronts look all over this county. Yeah, Tyler, same thing to you. Yeah, um, largely the same as the other communities. We um, have adopted a watershed management plan that is going to, over the next 50-plus um, years, it calls for raising our seawalls, raising our roads, and then raising the properties in between. And right now we have a, a challenge with our comprehensive plan and our land development regulations that forbids any properties from bringing any fill into our city. Um, so we're working on changing that so that people can bring in fill to raise their properties up and comply with our watershed management plan because that's really how it's going to get done. And we're also um, implementing or building a living shoreline. We received over a million dollars in grant funding from the state and the Tampa Bay Estuary Program to build a living shoreline around our golf course, Treasure Bay Golf Course, which is right on the intercoastal waterway. And we were looking at about $1.8 million to replace the seawall there. Instead of replacing it with a seawall, we're replacing it with um, all the things that Mayor Henderson spoke about with the living shoreline. So um, those types of shorelines are more resilient and more able to deal with the what nature deals out because it's more more natural. Yeah. Um, we're doing other things like we're working towards being a LEED certified city. Um, we have electric vehicles charging stations throughout the city um, and working on things in our comprehensive plan, which is um, being actively rewritten right now to actively combat um, issues with the environment. Mary Beth? Um, we've adopted an ordinance recently to raise our seawalls, just like everybody else is talking about. Um, we've also added freeboard to the homes, another foot of freeboard, and that helps with our um, CRS points, which gives insurance discounts to our residents. So that's been a really big drive for us is getting that insurance discount because the insurance, flood insurance, is crazy priced right now. Yeah. Everybody saw a huge increase, and that is a big concern. Mm -hmm. Big, big concern. Well, that was Mary Beth Henderson, the mayor of Reddington Shores. Before her, we heard Tyler Payne of Treasure Island, Sam Henderson of Gulfport, John Hendricks of Madeira Beach, Al Johnson of St. Pete Beach, and David Will, the mayor of Reddington Beach. They spoke this month at a forum hosted by the Institute for Strategic Policy Solutions at St. Petersburg College and the Treasure Island and Madeira Beach Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to WMNF Tampa. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. Coming up after this very short music break, we're going to recognize Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And joining us will be the head of the Military Sexual Trauma Department at Veterans Affairs in Tampa. Please stay with us. I need to lay down, only just got up. I feel so uninspired, I feel like giving up. I feel like someone has punched me in the guts. But I kind of like it because it feels like being
Welcome back to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and joining us now by Zoom is the coordinator of the Military Sexual Trauma Department at Veterans Affairs in Tampa. Welcome to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe, Dr. Amber Hudspeth. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much. I'm really glad you can join us. Uh, so tell us, what is Sexual Assault Awareness Month? And in the VA, you're also recognizing Military Sexual Trauma Month. Tell us what those are. So Sexual Assault Awareness Month is um, recognized in the month of April, and it's actually recognized nationally as Sexual Assault Awareness Month. So it's not just in the VA, it's actually nationally throughout the country. And it's the month that is dedicated to um, recognizing that sexual assault awareness, sexual assault is still a prevalent problem within our society, both nationally and internationally. So we set aside that month to really focus on prevention and awareness of this problem and the um, sort of awareness that treatment is available, that help is available, that people who experience this are not alone. So often when people experience um, sexual assault, they kind of feel very isolated. They feel like I'm the only person that this is happening to. No one would understand what I'm going through. And so we really dedicate this month to raise awareness that this isn't a problem that people experience in a vacuum by yourself, that there are other people who are experiencing this as well, that there are treatments that are available. There are people who will understand what you've been through so that um, people who have been through it know that we can really help you through that and so that people recognize that this is still a problem that we need to devote time to preventing, that we can devote resources to preventing and that there are resources available for both of those things. Our guest is Dr. Amber Hudspeth with the Department of Veterans Affairs in Tampa. She's the coordinator of the Military Sexual Trauma Department, and you're listening to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. So, Dr. Hudspeth, how common is sexual trauma, including in the military? So, we track um, military sexual trauma, the frequency of it, through um, what we call um, a clinical reminder. So, during um, a person's first visit with the um, Department of Veteran Affairs at, so that during their first treatment visit at the VA, we ask them whether or not they've experienced military sexual trauma. And we track that frequency of MST that way. And what we find is that the frequency of it is about one in three female people seeking care at the VA and one in 50 male people seeking care at the VA report that they've experienced military sexual trauma which is actually a pretty startling number if you think about it. But even those numbers we assume are an underrepresentation of the actual rates because those don't quite capture people who might be hesitant about reporting their experiences. It also doesn't capture people who don't really identify what they've experienced as military sexual trauma. And it doesn't capture people who served in the military but are not getting their care at the VA, either because they are seeking care elsewhere or because they don't understand that given their experience in military sexual trauma, they actually would be eligible for care at the VA, even if they are not eligible for care otherwise. And so I noticed that um, when we were speaking, um, you had referred to me as the head of the MST department. I'm actually the MST coordinator, which is a little bit different. Um, so I am the MST coordinator, which means I'm the MST subject matter expert for the hospital, and I am in our MST clinic. Um, I'm, but I, there's other people in the clinic. I'm not quite the head of the clinic, but so I just want to make the correction. There are many other great, fantastic people in their clinic, and I am not their boss by any means or shape. <laughs> so, but I am sort of our MST subject matter expert for the facility. 
disability. I appreciate the clarification there. Thank you, Dr. <laughs> Hudsmith. Well, let me ask you about what are some of the difficulties that, that people might experience after sexual trauma? And uh, th these could also be signs that their friends could look for. Absolutely. So one of the things to know is that even if people experience military sexual trauma, the vast majority of people actually can recover without necessarily needing um, sort of professional help. So if you are somebody who's experienced it and you've recovered, I don't want you to think that like, oh my gosh, I experienced this. This means I need to go and see somebody. That's not what Sexual Assault Awareness Month is about. So we're not saying that because you experience this, you automatically need to go and be seen by somebody. But if you are struggling, there are lots of different ways that um, sexual assault or military sexual trauma affects people. And it's a broad range of things. So for some people, some of the most common things we see are development of things like PTSD or depression. Sometimes it's alcohol and substance use problems, but it can also be things like more health conditions. So things like GI problems or gastrointestinal problems, chronic pain. Sometimes it's things like infertility problems. It can be things like um, problems with um, eating disorders. It can affect people in a lot of different ways. One of the things that I really tell people to look for is noticeable changes in how the person is behaving or acting. That's one of the ways that you can really notice if something is different. So if somebody is distinctly behaving differently than how they were before, that's one of the things that you should really check in with that person and see like, I've noticed that there's been this really distinct change. How are you doing? Is, it, do you, is there anything that you want to talk about? But if that person says, no, this isn't something that I really want to talk about, then kind of respect their privacy. But if you notice that they are struggling and you're not sure what to do, there's actually this really great resource, resource that's called Coaching Into Care. It's a VA-offered resource that actually is specifically designed for friends and family members that are noticing changes in their people that they care about that actually helps talk with you about how do you talk with a family member or friend that you notice is struggling and you want to help get them into care and you don't know how. Right? I think as having grown up in a military family, watching the people that I care about struggle is one of the things that got me into the position that I'm in because I wanted to help out. And being on that side and not knowing necessarily how to talk to the people we care about, I love this resource of coaching into care because it actually helps the people that we care about help them get help. And so coaching into care is a really great resource for all of us in our life to be able to help the people we really care about. Our guest is the Military Sexual Trauma Coordinator at Veterans Affairs in Tampa, Dr. Amber Hudspeth, and you're listening to WMNF Tampa's Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. Dr. Hudspeth, the, some of the factors, what are some of the factors that is that could impact how, how a person responds to sexual trauma, the different difficulties that they might experience? So some of the factors that can influence how somebody um, response is whether or not they've experienced trauma before this, whether or not um, sort of the type of experience they've had. So military sexual trauma covers a broad range of experiences. So it includes things like sexual harassment. It includes things like attempted sexual assault, and it includes things 
such as completed sexual assault. So the severity of the experience that they had, whether it was repeated. And another thing that really impacts how people um, recover or sort of the difficulties they have after is the support that they had after that experience. All of those factors can really combine to determine sort of what happens, how that person recovers, and also their own sort of skills that they have to deal with emotion. So if they didn't have really great coping skills before something like this happened, the likelihood is, is that this event is not going to magically create good coping skills for them. And so if they didn't have really good coping skills beforehand, this is likely going to be an event that overwhelms the coping skills that they already had. And we may have talked a little bit about some of this already, but what are some people that what are some things that people can do that can help them to cope with it or to help them recover? One of the things is to reach out for support. Suffering in silence is really difficult. And so if there's somebody in your life that you trust, talk with them. If there isn't someone that you can trust, the VA is a really great place to go for care. We are trauma experts. We have more experience than kind of anybody in the, in the country on dealing with trauma. At the VA, you can get MST related care at any of our clinical locations. So not only at the main facility here in Tampa, but at any of our CBOC locations. So that includes Lakanto, that includes Lakeland, Brooksville, Zephyr Hills, South Hillsboro, Newport Ritchie, all of our clinics have clinicians that are trained to work with um, veterans who have experienced military sexual trauma. The VA is really dedicated to working with patients who have experienced sexual trauma, and we are here and willing to help. There are, there's no one path towards recovery for trauma. And so we really offer a wide variety of treatments for people who are wanting to recover. And so there's no one path that people get sort of pigeonholed in. And so talking with people that they care about, they can call me and ask me questions about what care at the VA might be like. And so um, if you want, I can give out my direct line and they can call me and talk to me about what that might be. So my direct line is um, 813-631-2583. They're welcome to call me as the MST coordinator and I can talk to them about what their care options might be. And really think about um, understanding that there is life after this and life can look full of um, joy and laughter and intimacy and closeness and all of those things that feel impossible after this experience can be there again. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. It's also Military Sexual Trauma Month. And so we're speaking with the Military Sexual Trauma Coordinator at Veterans Affairs in Tampa, Dr. Amber Hudspeth. You're listening to WMNF Tampa 88.5 FM. I'm Sean Canan. This is Tuesday Cafe. And so, Dr. Hudspeth, so far we've been talking about your specialty, which is Veterans Administration. But uh, imagine that I'm sure that some of our audience out there isn't, they aren't all veterans, of course. So um, we might be stretching a little bit beyond your, your expertise, but what would you recommend for someone if they're not a veteran and they're, they're seeking help? Are there things that you know about that people can do? There are. So a lot of great resources in the community. A really great one is NAMI. So it's the National Alliance of Mental Illness.org. They really help connect people in the community with resources that would be available for them in the community. 
often also um, looking up sort of um, psychologists or therapists that are um, kind of connected with the American Psychological Association. That is sort of like the governing body for psychologists. That's who does our licensing. And then really looking up and talking with people in their community about um, what are some good resources that are available and kind of talking with people in their community, reaching out and looking at some of those resources would be a good way to go as well. There's also like if people are involved in um, domestic violence, there is the National Domestic Violence Hotline that is available. The website for that is actually hotpeachpages.org. I know it's, the website seems weird, but that is so that if people are looking it up on their computer and they're involved in a domestic violence situation, that is not going to sort of tip off sort of their significant others. So that's another great resource that people can look at if they need something. So those would be some of the resources that I would really encourage people to look at in the community as well. Our guest is the Military Sexual Trauma Coordinator at Veterans Affairs in Tampa, Dr. Amber Hudspeth. And we're and we're talking about Military Sexual Trauma Month at the VA and also Sexual Assault Awareness Month beyond the veterans. Uh, we've talked about some of the websites where people can seek help, whether they're in the, the Veterans Administration uh, field of influence or whether they're outside of that. But uh, tell us about what some of the services that you haven't mentioned yet that the VA does offer for people who have uh, experienced military sexual trauma. So for veterans who've experienced military sexual trauma, we at the VA offer a full range of treatments. So that includes both psychotherapy, that includes psychiatry services, that includes full medical care, and all of that, if it's related to their experience of military sexual trauma, is offered at no cost to the veteran. So that includes any sort of um, trauma processing therapy, that includes any type of um, medication that might be related that includes any type of procedure that they might need. All of that is covered at no cost. And so we really encourage people that, and that there's no sort of like expiration date on that. So usually with private insurance, you get 10 to 12 sessions over a certain period of time. And that's the amount of care that you get. We don't sort of have those limitations at the VA. So people can sort of be in care to address whatever number of sort of aftermath or whatever sort of difficulties they're having for as long as it takes to resolve that issue without sort of those restrictions, which really means you get a broad base round of care. And we really are sort of leaders in the field of psychology, psychotherapy, and psychiatry. We really are sort of offering that broad based care about dealing with not only issues of trauma, but also issues in relationship, communication, sexual intimacy, infertility, kind of difficulties with pregnancy, all of those things that can come after having difficulties with military sexual trauma. Some veterans might not be eligible to, re- to receive VA care. Uh, you can tell us about why that might be. But even if that's the case, they are still able to get care for military sexual trauma. Is that right? That's true. So even veterans that have other than honorable discharges, and that would then make them ineligible for MS for care at the VA, would still be eligible for care at the VA if they experienced MST. 
and they're eligible then for care that's related to MST. So say somebody has um, an other than honorable discharge, as long as it's not sort of a criminal discharge, and then they're banned from care at the VA kind of universally, they're eligible for any care that's related to their experience of MST. So say a person had an experience of sexual assault and they receive, and then after that, they started drinking and they started drinking and then they decided they ended up going AWOL. And because of that, they ended up with an administrative dishonorable discharge. So that person would then be eligible for care at the VA for MST related care. So that MST related care would cover psychotherapy, psychiatry, if they're still drinking substance use disorder treatment, if they subsequently just developed um, cirrhosis of the liver from their drinking that was dealing with the MST, then that would be covered. If they then also during the experience of their MST, they suffered a severe eye injury, then any care that was related to that eye injury would also be covered. So it really is not just sort of this small, it's anything that would reasonably be connected to that experience of MST is covered. And so even if they're not eligible for other types of care, anything that's related to that experience of MST is covered. And so it really is this broad experience of care that they can, that they can have access to based on their experience. Our guest is the Military Sexual Trauma Coordinator at the Veterans Affairs in Tampa, Dr. Amber Hudspeth. And we're talking about Sexual Assault Awareness Month, which is April. It's also Military Sexual Trauma Month. You're listening to WMNF Tampa 88.5 FM. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. So some people who are victims of sexual trauma might not feel comfortable getting treatment in mixed gender settings. What Mm -hmm. options would you have for those people? So we have um, at our primary care annex, which is located over on sort of like the cross of Fletcher and 75, we actually have a women's center specifically for our female patients that are hesitant about receiving care in a more mixed gender setting. And that has, um, during non-COVID times, it has a separate entrance that actually is only open for female veterans to come in. And that is a um, sort of a part of the building where only female veterans receive care. Uh, Most of our staff there is female as well. So all of our therapists right now, all of our uh, medication providers are female as well. And so we really have created this environment that is very welcoming. It is very sort of Um, the options there for care are the same as they can get at any other place in the hospital. So it's not as though that because they're going to this special place, the options are reduced. And then if we have um, male veterans that are hesitant about receiving care in mixed company, we also have some options for scheduling of appointments at different times at our mental health clinic that we can do either early morning or later afternoon when the appointment, when the waiting room is not quite as busy. Um, so that we have that options as well, so that we have some extended time so that we can have that flexibility. We also offer a number of virtual care options so that people, uh, apart from maybe an initial evaluation, can actually engage in care from the comfort of their own home. So they don't actually even need to come into the appointment unless it's something 
where they need to come and have an injection, or there's a type of treatment that they're doing where they have to actually physically have some sort of apparatus for that care, they don't actually need to come into the clinic. And so that has really opened a lot of care options for a number of people who may be hesitant about coming in or that have really busy work schedules that they can see us on their lunch break, things like that, that have really expanded a lot of those care options for people who may be hesitant about coming in. We don't even have some of those issues of the waiting room because you can do it from your home. Dr. Amber Hudsmith is the Military Sexual Trauma Coordinator at Veterans Affairs in Tampa. We're talking about Military Sexual Trauma Month and Sexual Assault Awareness Month on WMNF Tampa's Tuesday Cafe. Dr. Hudsmith, before I let you go, what are, are questions that I haven't been able to ask you, but that you, that you think that are important for people to know? I think one of the things that um, I would like everyone to know is that all of us here at the VA are really passionate about helping the people that we work with, that all of us are, I don't think any of us at the VA are here by accident. We're all here because we are passionate about working with veterans that we are all, I think all the clinicians that I work with are excellent at their jobs and really enjoy the work that we do, that we are here because we firmly believe in the treatments that we offer, that we enjoy the population that we work with, that we really take value in the things and the people that we work with, and that there is hope, there is treatment, there are things that work, and that we are here to help in any way that we can. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on WMNF's Tuesday Cafe, Dr. Hudspeth. Thank you for having me so much. Dr. Amber Hudspeth is the Military Sexual Trauma Coordinator at Veterans Affairs in Tampa. And if you missed this interview, you can watch it later this afternoon. It'll be on our website, wmnf.org. In our last few minutes, I have a short interview to play for you. An author is putting on the finishing touches to a new play about the Tampa lunch counter sit-ins in 1960. The host of WMNF Sunday Simca, Joy Katzen Guthrie, shared with me this short interview she did with playwright Mark Lieb. The name of the play is When the Righteous Triumph, and it's about the desegregation of lunch counters in 1960 in downtown Tampa. The desegregation was the result of sit-ins by students led by a 22-year-old barber named Clarence Fort. And it eventually got the support of the NAACP and Reverend A. Leon Lowry. And negotiations that went on between store owners and black leaders were, in a sense, mediated by Mayor Julian Lane, who wanted to make sure that Tampa did not become a byword for racial strife like Little Rock or Birmingham. What inspired me to create the play were a few things. First of all, I'm an observant Jew, and I'm always trying to find ways to make my writing more consonant with my beliefs. Another point is that my wife Elizabeth kept saying to me over the last few years, write more about Tampa. I had lived for almost 20 years in the New England area, and my plays tended to be about the Northeast. So I wanted to try to write something about the Tampa area now that I've been living in it for so long. And then finally, I was uh, reading a book called From Saloons to Steakhouses by Andrew Hoos. It's a history of Tampa. And I read a chapter called A Place at the Table, all about the sit-ins that happened in January and afterwards in 1960. And I thought, what a great subject matter. So I went to Carla Hartley of Stageworks. She's always been supportive of plays dealing in social justice and human rights issues. 
I told her I wanted to write a play about the sit-ins in 1960. She was immediately enthusiastic and said that Stageworks would commission the play from me. I began my research, and over the course of maybe seven or eight months, I wrote a version of the play and then rewrote it a few times. I think that people in Tampa will be surprised to find out some of the things that went on in the history of this town in 1960. I think uh, they'll find some heroes and some villains. Sort of an astounding look at an aspect of Tampa life that has gone largely unnoticed or unremembered over the years. I hope the uh, people in the Tampa Bay area will be desirous of finding out something about some of the heroes who helped push through integration of the lunch counters, as well as some of the villains who tried to prevent segregation from being ended. I think there's a lot here of interest to a Tampa Bay audience, and maybe an audience beyond that as well. Well, that was Mark Lieb, the author of a new play about the Tampa lunch counter sit-ins of 1960. And I want to thank WMNF's Sunday Simca host, Joy Katzen Guthrie, for sending me that interview to play. I also want to thank Frank Knox, Frank Knox, that is, for answering phones today. And I want to thank my guest that we just heard from, who is Dr. Amber Hudspeth, the Military Sexual Trauma Coordinator at Veterans Affairs in Tampa for the great interview that she just gave us. And again, you can watch that interview later this afternoon. It'll be on our website, wmnf.org. You've been listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. The show is every Tuesday morning at 10. And if you like the programming on 88.5 FM, please consider making a donation. And you can double your impact beginning at noon today through the Giving Challenge. We have more information on that at WMNF.org. In this time slot tomorrow, Shelley will host Midpoint. She'll talk about the Department of Education's rejection of dozens of math textbooks. And her guest will be Reagan Miller, a Pinellas County Public School parent who represents the Florida Freedom to Read Project. So if you are interested in the subject of book banning, please turn in tomorrow at 10 o'clock to listen to Midpoint with Shelley. Next up, we have Wavemakers with Janet and Tom Sherberger. They're going to talk with Fred Hearns, the curator of Black History at the Tampa Bay History Center. That's all coming up after NPR News headlines. You're listening to WMNF Tampa. St. Petersburg, Sarasota, and Lakeland, thanks so much for listening to community radio in the Tampa Bay area and for supporting WMNF.